service. I was telling people this morning, I said, I know I've been doing this for 31 years, but I'm as nervous as if it was the first time I've ever preached because of the awesome privilege that I get of taking the fresh bread of the Word of God and feeding it to our souls this morning. And I ask that the Lord would feed you and that there would be something from this that you would draw strength and knowledge of the presence and the power of the Lord from. I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles that you would turn to John chapter 14. And I'm going to be reading verses 5 and 6. We'll refer to several other, other different scriptures this morning. But in John chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, I pray today that you would allow us to understand that you were the gate and that we must come through you. And so we ask that you would lead us and guide us in Jesus name. Amen. A couple of months ago, I was in a, a presbyters meeting in our district office and Bob Reeves, who is our newly elected uh, secretary treasurer, was giving a devotion and in his devotional thoughts, he highlighted some thoughts that I went up to him after that and said, I want to take your thoughts and develop them into an Easter message. And I was going to do it whether he said I could or not. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that we at least acknowledge some of his thoughts this morning. But my wife and I have lived in the same house for 17 years. <clears throat> and across the street from us, kind of catty corner from us, is the biggest house in the neighborhood. It's twice the size of any other house there is in our neighborhood. In fact, it's a double lot house, and when they built it, they decided not to aim it at one street or the other, but to kind of put it catty corner so that it faces the corner, so it doesn't matter which way you go on the intersection, you can't miss seeing this beautiful, sprawling home. And in the 17 years that we've lived there, Cindy and I have met just about all of our neighbors, but we never, ever met the people that lived in that house. In fact, there were times we didn't know if anybody really lived there, except that every now and then a car would pull up and it kind of had tinted windows and it would pull in the driveway and they would hit the button and the garage door would go up, they'd go in and the garage door would go down. And we didn't know anybody was there unless there was a light on in the house. And so for all of us in the neighborhood, there was great intrigue about this house and who lived there and what was going on. And each spring, just about now, they would have this huge crew come up with trucks and the guys would just begin to make the place look immaculate on the outside, planting gardens, planting flowers, raking everything up. The yard always just looked fantastic. It was a show place, and every fall they would come back and clean it up and get it ready for winter. And for people that didn't seem to live there very much, the yard looked fantastic, which only added to the intrigue of what this place might look like on the inside. It was in October, I believe, that Cindy and I were pulling out on a Sunday morning to come to church and we recognized that there was a for sale sign in the yard. And it said, open house this afternoon from 2 to 5. Cindy said, I'd really appreciate it if you could keep your message a little shorter this morning so that we might be one of those who could get in and look at this place. I don't know if I preach short or not, but we made it before the end of the day. And I remember as we got to this house, 
The salesman met us at the door and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take off your shoes. And I said, of course we do. And he said, uh, what are you looking for? And I said, we're not looking for anything. We're just neighbors. And he started laughing. He goes, I think through the afternoon, every neighbor in the neighborhood has been here to this open house. I said, well, you have to understand, we've all been a little intrigued about this place. And we took our shoes off and the door opened and we walked in. And they hadn't changed a thing in that house since they built it in 1980. Same carpet, same trim, smelled like 1980. And we looked around, and as we walked from room to room, it was a sprawling place, lots of room, but it was a major disappointment to what we had built up in our minds. And I asked you a question this morning. Have you ever felt like you were incapable of living up to the expectations of other people? Have you ever sensed that no matter what you did and how well you did it, that it was never going to be good enough? Have you lived with the thought or the knowledge that it doesn't matter? Whatever I try to achieve, it's never going to be good enough for people around me. Have the circumstances of your life caused you to give up your dreams and to pursue other things that are lesser perhaps because your dreams have been emotionally beaten out of you or they've been disappointed out of you or perhaps they've been belittled out of you? Because if so, there's a word for the Lord from the Lord for you today. And I recognize today that on this Easter Sunday, churches across the world are packed. I can tell you from a pastor's point of view, this generally is the day that you have more people show up to church than any other time. And the reason that this is a high attendance day is because, for the most part, people want to acknowledge the existence of God. They want God to know that we believe that you exist, and so we're going to come today on this Easter and we're going to celebrate with people And we're going to be found in the house of the Lord because we believe that you exist, O God. There are many, however, that are setting themselves up for a disappointment. Because if if all of you do today is stop at acknowledging his existence without ever encountering him in a personal way, then you will have missed out on what Easter is all about. God coming to get you. I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. And I recognize that this may be a little bit unusual of a book to turn to on Easter, but bear with me. We'll get around to it. And I want to spend a few minutes and tell you a story. In Genesis chapter 28, I'm going to begin reading with verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 22. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep... 
he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. I want to tell you the rest of the story. Paul Harvey used to do that. He would tell you a story and then say, and now for the rest of the story. We read about Jacob. Let me tell you how he got here. We know that Jacob believed in the existence of God. In fact, he knew it because he had relatives that had experienced God in a very personal way, in a powerful way. Jacob had a perfect pedigree. His grandfather was Abraham of all people. His father was Isaac. And for those of you who may live in a family where it seems as if you come from a pedigree of high achieving people and you live in a life where you're thinking, I don't know if I can ever do what dad or grandpa or those others did. Jacob knew what that felt like. He knew what it was like to live with constant disappointment in the way that he behaved. Expectations were probably pretty high for Jacob. Everything that his grandfather Abraham had, had received had come from a direct promise that came from a conversation with God. Abraham knew what the voice of God sounded like. And God had given him his covenant. And then the second generation comes around and Isaac is there. And it wasn't enough that Isaac had Abraham as a father because God wanted to have a relationship with Isaac himself. And so he passed on the promises that he'd given to Abraham to Isaac, his son. And Isaac received everything that he got through inheritance. He inherited the promise of Abraham. And then Jacob arrives on the scene. And you have to imagine that Jacob, even as a boy with his twin brother Esau, lived under the expectations of what dad and grandpa had accomplished in their life. And I'm sure that it was rather intimidating. Can you imagine the stories that Jacob and Esau heard from their dad Isaac as they're sitting on his lap? And he says, let me tell you about the conversations that Abraham had with God. Let me tell you about your grandpa. Your grandpa and God were like this. He heard God's voice. God picked him out out of all of the world and said, it's through you and your line that I'm going to bless you. And those little boys hearing that story on dad's lap about how rich of a pedigree that they had. And as these young men begin to grow up and hear about the adventures of Abraham and Isaac, rather than following in the footsteps of their father and grandfather, pursue a relationship with God by faith, Jacob begins to rebel. And he goes about accumulating things in his life because he was very smart and very cunning. He accumulated everything that he had by manipulation. Abraham had received it by promise. Isaac by inheritance. Jacob by manipulation. And here is how Jacob's life of manipulation started. Following Abraham's death, God reveals to Isaac's wife, Rebekah, that she will soon give birth to two sons, and they're going to represent two different nations, one stronger than the other. 
And when Rebecca delivers, the Bible tells us that Esau was the first one born and that Jacob was kind of grabbing his heel on the way out. Esau was told to be extremely hairy. Jacob, not so much. Smooth-skinned. Became a very skilled thinker. Was one that seemed to hang around and have a mind of intrigue. Esau became a hunter and a brash man. Jacob stays home, becomes rather soft-spoken but quick-witted. And one day as these boys had grown up and become men, Esau, being a hunter, was out and it was a bad day. In fact, for him to be as hungry as he was, it must have been a bad season. He didn't get anything. And he comes back home and he is starving to death. He's famished and he's demanding to be fed. And he comes to Jacob, his younger brother. And Jacob, being very cunning when Esau says, listen, give me something to eat. Jacob begins to see an opportunity for personal advancement here. And he knows that just by the shortest amount of time, Esau, being the older brother, inherits the rights to receive just about everything in the family. And so Jacob says, here's the deal, big brother. I'll feed you, but you've got to switch inheritances with me. I get the inheritance of the older brother. You get the inheritance of the younger brother. And he's holding up the soup, blowing the aroma to him. And Esau says, you got a deal. And in that moment, Jacob, who had been void of blessing, manipulated his way into receiving the inheritance of his older brother. This wasn't the last time that Jacob would begin to do this kind of thing in his life. In fact, as time went on, the Bible begins to tell us that Isaac, the dad, became very old. In fact, he became blind and his senses were beginning to dull and he knew that his life was coming to an end. And as it was tradition, the father would lay his hands upon the oldest son and pass on the fatherly blessing. And in the case of Isaac, it was not just the fatherly blessing, but it was the blessing of the covenant of God moved on to the next generation. And he told Esau, being the older brother, this belongs to you, so why don't you go out in the field and catch us some game, come back and feed me, and as you do so, as you prepare that meal, I will give you the blessing. And when Esau left, the mother, Rebekah, heard what was going on, and she told Jacob, we're going to get this blessing. And so Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, begin a little plan to put together. And as I was thinking about this, being that they were twin boys, chances are they were probably about the same height, and... They probably had similar features, and so that if Isaac, the father being blind, reached out and kind of felt the face, they may feel similar enough that he might not have known the difference. But there was a major difference in the way that the young men dressed and the way they smelled. And so, Rebecca helps Jacob put on Esau's clothing, and because Esau was a hairy man and Jacob wasn't, they took the wool of an animal and put it on his arm, and so they had this scheme all together, came and... Jacob came before his dad who was blind and couldn't see and steps up to him and maybe without saying anything, hands his father a meal. And Isaac reaches out and grabs a hold of Jacob's arm and he feels the wool of an animal and says, yep, that's Esau, hairy boy. He leans over because he knows that Jacob and Esau smell differently. And as he's smelling, he says, yeah, I smell the field. This is Esau. And he lifts up his hands and he puts his hands on Jacob thinking against Esau and he bestows the fatherly blessing of the covenant of God upon Jacob. The promised inheritance and that he would be greater in status than his brother. 
Esau returns from the field, prepares the meal and comes before his dad, all prepared to receive the fatherly blessing, only to discover that Jacob, the manipulator, had once again struck. And we would think, well, all he has to do is say, oh, I take the blessing away from Jacob and I give it to Esau. But that's not the way it worked. Once the blessing had been given, it was irrevocable. And Esau realized that he had been robbed again of his blessing. And it could not be revoked, even though it had been stolen. This is more than Esau can take. Now, he's put up with this little brother and his behavior his whole life. And he tells Jacob, listen, as soon as our father dies, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take my revenge, but I'll wait till after dad dies because I don't want him to know. And Jacob, under the guise of going to look for a bride, goes to his father and says, I would like permission to take a journey, if I could, please, because I would like to get married and I need to go and find a wife. And so the father gave him his special permission so that he could go. But actually, Jacob was beginning to run for his life in fear that his life of manipulation might finally catch up with him. And the one thing that you notice about Jacob at this point in his life is that as you read through it, never once was there a time in Jacob's life when he cried out to God. He always thought that he could do this on his own. And now he was beginning to reap the benefits or the consequences of his self-dependence. And one night while he's running, and I find it very interesting in the description of this, that though Jacob came from a very wealthy family, he ran with nothing took nothing with him. In the middle of nowhere, surrounded by darkness, exhausted from running, the adrenaline drained from the fear, he finally surrenders to sleep with no shelter. The scripture that we read said that he took a rock and used it as a pillow. Now, even the best Royal Rangers know that cannot be comfortable. That's how little he had. And when he closed his eyes that night, heaven seemed closed. Jacob. And here we find the man with the perfect pedigree, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He had come from a family of blessing. He'd come from a family of privilege. He had everything going from him for him. But at this point, Jacob is at a point of complete personal emptiness. This is a picture of how Jacob's life had fallen apart. But what happened next changed his life. The first point I'd like to point out to you this morning is Jacob dreams of a gate to heaven. The Bible tells us that that night when he was asleep, he dreamed. And in his dream, there were three things that showed up. Number one, he saw in his dream a stairway to the bottom, uh, that the bottom of that stairway was resting on the earth and the top of it was in heaven. How many of you have ever had a nightmare or a dream that was so real when you woke up, you thought you were someplace else? There are some of you that travel a lot, and you never know when you're traveling, you wake up and you're in a strange place, and it happens so often, you just have to take a minute to get your bearings. Where am I? I would imagine that this was one of those times that when he woke up that morning, it was just in sweat, wondering, what has just happened here? But the Bible describes for us several things that were so real to him that he knew that he was living in a reality even though this happened when he was asleep. And he saw a stairway with the bottom on the earth and the top reaching to heaven. And while he's looking at this stairway, he sees that there's activity on it. He sees that there are angels that are going up and down this stairway, back and forth from the earth into heaven. And as they are doing that, they are carrying out the will of God on earth. 
proving to Jacob that God's power was active and on the move, even though he didn't see it in his own physical eyes that God was doing some things. When the angels show up, the first things they always have to tell humans is don't be afraid. Why? Because when we see angels, we're afraid. Thirdly, he saw the Lord. For the first time in Jacob's life, he got to experience something that his grandfather had experienced and his dad had experienced. He saw the Lord standing at the top of the stairway, directing the affairs of earth and of people's lives through heavenly beings. Not only did he see these three things, but he heard three things. The Lord spoke to Jacob and said three things. Number one, he told him, and I find it very interesting the things that he spoke to him because they all fit his life perfectly. He said, number one, I will be with you. At this moment in time, think about where Jacob is and what's happening in his life. He is friendless. The only person that we know that loves him is his mother. Mothers can love anybody. And God speaks to him and says, I will be with you. I will be your companion. The second thing that he says is, I will watch over you. Jacob was defenseless and vulnerable at this point in time. He's laying in the middle of nowhere and the Lord speaks to him and says, I will be your canopy of protection. I will be around you. I'm going to protect my covenant with you. And the third thing God said to him is, I will bless you and your descendants. Jacob was penniless and he was without a future. And God said, I will give these things to you. And the significance is that the power of heaven was now open to the world through the covenant that had been given to Jacob. And verse 13 says, there above it stood the Lord. He was watching and directing the events from heaven's perspective. I want you to know something. God is directing the affairs of your life and our world from above. He's watching. He's with you. Even though you don't see it, God is up to something. There's much going on that we do not see with our own eyes. In fact, there's a great passage of Scripture that's found in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 18, when the prophet Elisha was standing with a servant, and the armies that he could see of the world were coming to attack them, and he was afraid. And it says in verse 15, when the servant of, man, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. One of the reasons I love that particular passage of Scripture the most is because there's moments in time when you feel as if everything is going against you. There are moments of time when you feel you're about to be defeated and overrun and overcome. And in those moments, you need to begin to pray, Lord, I need the armies of heaven to begin to show up on my behalf. If you could just let me see things from the perspective of heaven for a moment, I won't be afraid because I know that what I see with my eyes is less than what you see with your eyes. So move on my behalf. Cindy and I, two or three years ago, were on an airplane and we were sitting near the back and there was a little boy who must have been four or five back there with his mother, and obviously this was the first time he'd ever been on an airplane. 
As we begin to take off, he's going, ooh, we're on a rocket. And he's yelling loud enough for everybody to hear him. And as we get up in the air and it's a beautiful, clear day, he jumps on his mother's laps and he looks out over the window and he goes, Mom, I can see the whole world from here. And everybody in the plane started laughing and kind of clapping. And I thought for a moment, that boy was seeing life from a whole new perspective in that moment. There are moments in our life when we need to understand that God sees our life from a whole different perspective than what we do. Some of you today are here and there are some things that have been stuck in your soul for a while. There have been things that have happened to you that you don't understand. And if you believe that God could have stopped these things from happening to you in your life, then you also have to acknowledge that He might see things differently than you do. From his perspective, there may be things that have happened that right now you cannot explain and you do not understand, but God is working things out that you can't see from the perspective of heaven because he is at work within our world. And when Jacob wakes up the next morning, probably with a stiff neck from having to sleep on a rock, he begins to go through his mind of what he had just seen in his spirit. And he recognized, number one, that God's words to him were unconditional. And also notice that God never spoke one word of condemnation to Jacob. He didn't say, Jacob, you little idiot. You have no idea what you've got going for you and you have just ruined it all. I gave you the best pedigree. I, you know, God could have said any of those things, but he didn't. He took Jacob right where he was at and he revealed himself to him and said, your future will be different as a result of this encounter that you have had with me. And I will continue to bless through you. And from the beginning of time, people have wanted to get to heaven. And Jacob said, this is the gate to heaven. We look through history of mankind. It tells us in Genesis 11 that there's a group of people that wanted to build a tower to heaven. That tower was named Babel. It was intended to be the gate of heaven. And the tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat with a stairway on the outside as people were trying to walk to get as close to heaven as they could so they could get close to God And every attempt that man has made has always been a way for us to try to get to God and try to get to heaven. And all religions have tried to build a stairway to heaven. You have the five pillars of Islam. And as I looked at those this week, they are all duties that must be performed in one's lifetime just so that you might get to heaven. You have the Ten Commandments of Judaism, the Thou Shalt Nots. It reminds us very clearly that there are behaviors that disqualifies us from climbing the stairway to heaven. You have the eightfold path of Buddhism. The things that one must do to gain wisdom and conduct and trying to gain a mental capacity so that you might be qualified to try to find the pathway to get to heaven. But the difference in all of those and the dream that Jacob had was that in his dream, this was a stairway from heaven to get to him. Not him to get to God, but God coming after him. This is a stairway of grace. God comes after you. God stands over you. God gives you unconditional love regardless of the way that you have lived your life to this point. He does not speak to you in a condemning voice. He speaks to you in a redeeming voice. And says, I love you and I care for you. I'll bless you. I'll walk with you. I'll protect you. But don't just acknowledge me. Have an encounter with me. God's words to Jacob were unconditional. 
Jacob, being the businessman that he was, has this un, unbelievable response that's found in verses 20 through 22. And Jacob made a vow and it says, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food and clothes so that I can return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I'll give you a tent. That's not a vow. That's a contract negotiation. After this marvelous encounter with God, Jacob makes a contract negotiation with God. And today I would say to you, don't respond to God with contract negotiations. Respond to God with surrender. Because what He plans for you is better than anything that you can plan. What Jacob failed to understand in that moment that we now understand because of Easter is that the real gate of heaven is not a what. It's a who. Jesus is the gate of heaven. John 14, 6 that we read this morning said, Jesus was speaking and He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And I would encourage you to underline that verse within your Bible. And particularly highlight that word through Me because Jesus was very clearly describing Himself as the way to get to to the Father. It's nothing that you can build. It's nothing that you can do to get there. It is just recognizing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that if you want to get to the Father, it's got to be through the gate of Jesus Christ Himself. And for those of you that may have doubts and saying, you know what, there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. There's a lot of ways that I can get there. All these have their paths. I want you to know that Jesus is the only one that declared Himself to be the only way. He declared Himself to be the truth and He declared Himself to be the life and it was through Him that you get to heaven. There's a fascinating interaction that takes place in the New Testament that piggybacks on this thought of the stairway of heaven. And it's between Jesus and a man by the name of Nathaniel that's about to be selected as a disciple. Jesus was choosing and calling His disciples that, and He comes across and He gives us insight and clarity into this opening of heaven when we get to John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. It says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? How can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel said. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you. I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, and for those of you underlining in your Bible, this is a verse you're going to want to underline. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. And notice what the wording is here. On the Son of Man. Nathanael. I'm the stairway. Nathaniel, I'm the gate. 
Nathaniel, you've been seeking. You've been looking for a way. And I am it. I'm the gate to heaven. Now, as we read these, this, there's, we don't know what happened under the fig tree. But whatever it was with Nathaniel, between Nathaniel and Jesus, was Nathaniel perhaps spent some time under a fig tree saying, God, if you're real, I need to know. But whatever it was, it was private and it was significant because when Jesus mentioned it, it wiped away all and overwhelmed all of his intellectual doubts and he instantly recognized that this is Jesus. And he told him, you're going to see greater things than this. If you think that me telling you that I could see you when you weren't even in my sight is great, wait till you see what happens when people begin to recognize me as the gate to heaven. It's going to be greater than anything you could ever see. And Jesus is describing to Nathaniel, as well as to you and I today, He is the gate. I'm here to tell you that the gate is open to heaven. Jesus Christ has come. He's not dead. He's alive. And the gate to heaven and the gate to grace and the gate to forgiveness is wide open for you and I. This is the Easter story. Heaven is now open to you. Heaven is now open to me because of the living Jesus Christ. Nathaniel thought God wouldn't come to a place or come from a place like Nazareth. And he said, come and see. And there are many people today, perhaps even you're here today in this room, and you say, but Jesus would never come to seek me. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know what's going on in my heart and life. You don't know how bad I've been. You just described Jacob as a conniver and a manipulator. Well, he's got nothing on me. If God wouldn't condemn Jacob, he won't condemn you. If God worked so hard to, in the middle of a dream, open heaven so that Jacob could see the gate of heaven, then what will you do when you're confronted with the fact that Jesus today is your gate to a new life? Because right now, you are standing at the gate of heaven. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come. I want you to notice when God chose to come to Jacob. He chose to come to Jacob when Jacob was broken. When Jacob had nothing. There's nothing Jacob could do for himself. Jacob had been pretending. Everything had fallen apart. And it was that moment when Jesus chose to reveal himself to Jacob. It might be today that you are weak and you're alone. You're feeling as if your life is trashed. Or maybe worse yet, everything's going great in your life, but you just feel an emptiness and you know that you need to see the gate of heaven open for you. I want you to know that on an Easter morning, when Mary went to the tomb, it was empty. Not because people had stolen Jesus' body, but because the glory of the Father and resurrection life raised Him from the dead. And heaven was opened for you and I. God is working everywhere. I'm praying right now that He's beginning to speak to your heart and your life. God is calling you right now. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, is this verse. Jesus speaking says, Here I am. Here I am. I am standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and meet with him and he with me. What I love about this verse is this. 
God says he's standing at the door and knocking, but he also says, if you hear my voice, in other words, it's not just a gentle knock. He's standing at the door of your life and he's screaming, open the door, I'm here. He's just not knocking like some of us do when we go someplace, knock and hope nobody's home so that we can clear our schedule and go do what we want. God is beating on the door of your heart this morning. He says, I've opened heaven and I'm coming to get you. You don't have to find a way to heaven. I am the door and I'm here chasing you with my grace and my love and my mercy. My love for you is unconditional. 